but he'll be he'll be back with us next Sunday. So uh, we're in an we're in an Advent series, and all Advent means is coming. So we're we're preparing for the coming of Jesus. We're going through these little Advent books. If you don't have them, um, get them. Which there's there's some in the back, and we've got candles and so forth. Um, and we're going to be lighting some candles because there's candles for each week, and then the candle, uh, the white candle, will represent Jesus. So. Um, these books will, Mary and I are going through it, They'll, they've got some core scripture for the week, which we'll be going over here in a little bit, 1 Corinthians 13, and then some, some scriptures for each, each day. So when uh, Pastor Josh called and asked me to preach, I thought, love, now this is cool, I really want to speak about love. Uh, why is that? I mean, all of these are important, um, we've got hope, love. Uh, peace and joy, and then Jesus, all of them are important, but love, it's like love is the only thing that matters. When you know about life, you know love is the only thing that matters. So I've got some background in love. I've got some credentials. been loving God for about 52 years. He's been loving me for a lot longer. Been loving my wife for, uh, we just passed 47, 47 years when I First prayer. It wasn't, okay, it wasn't like, I love you, babe. It, it was, I was more tentative than that because I, um, I had, about a year before, had told my girlfriend that I loved her, and she says, no, you don't. We're, we're, not, we're not that far along. But, so when I, when I told Mary, I said, I was a little more hesitant. I said, I think I love you, and that was actually more genuine. A friend, I just told a friend of mine because he, he's in the whole love thing, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to talk about love because with the work that I do with college students and high school students, there's a huge confusion about love because adults are so clear about love in our culture okay that's sarcasm because <laughs> we're not clear so um he says so did you after you proclaimed your love to your wife did you get married right away i said well um i was 16 so we decided to wait till i was 18 that was actually probably a pretty good idea um but so i know a lot about love and yet there's so much love is the kind of thing there's always more to learn about it it's not that you get to the, okay, know, know about love, got that nail, don't need to learn anything more. Love's not like that, and that's one of the reasons I love the subject. I love the subject of love. Rev- love is revolutionary. I was meeting with a friend the other day. I meet with several guys, mentoring them, and, and um, you think it's like a little tough for 30 or 40 minutes of listening to me. Try one-on-one for an hour and a half. He says, my head is spinning. I'm thinking, that's cool. And if your head is spinning at the end of this talk, I think that's good. Because if love doesn't spin your head, something's wrong with you. Love should spin your heart, spin your head, and sometimes it's going to rip your heart out. There's some key scriptures we'll be looking at. One is from John 13, 35. Jesus says, by this all men will know that you're my disciples the way you love each other. Oh, that makes so much sense now. Totally stupid comment when he made it. But it's the truth. We'll be looking at 1 Corinthians 13. That's our primary scripture for the week. It is the quintessential chapter in the Bible about love. It's probably either, either the most known chapter of the Bible by non-Christians or, or it's second to Psalm 23. I don't know which, but but it is read most often. Psalm 23, mostly at funerals. It's not about death. 1 Corinthians 13, mostly at weddings. It's not about, strictly about romance. It's about something much deeper. Who are you loving? Who are you holding up with your love? 
Who are you moving forward with your love? Now, I gotta say, love, well, first of all, let's go to hope, because we covered that last week, Pastor Josh. So I'm ordering something from Amazon, and you know it's not gonna get here till tomorrow? I can't believe it. That's the kind of instant gratification culture we live in. We forget that these great scriptures from Isaiah that talk about the coming Messiah that will be read from Disneyland, at Disneyland tonight. Unto us a son is born, unto us a son is given. 700 years before Jesus comes. Jesus, I mean, uh, Pastor Josh pointed this out last week. Hope. It's not always instantaneous. It's for the long term. And we need to have hope for what God is doing. We have, need to have hope for the big picture that God is drawing. And today, love. The most misunderstood word in the English language. And the most powerful. It's interesting because we use love to describe everything from Starbucks drinks to clothing styles to TV shows. And that's one of the core problems our society has. First of all, we only have one, love, one word to describe all of that. And the, the, in, in the Greek, in the, in the New Testament, there's, there's three words. There's eros, which is a, a sexual love, and, and phileo, which is a brotherly love, and agape, which is a complete love. To have a love for someone or something based on sincere appreciation or high regard, a depth. But in our society, it's like, oh, I love that, I love it. And, and we tend to say we love things about fleeting stuff. Yeah, no one ever says, have you ever heard anyone say, I love bell bottoms? Because if you did, you just dated yourself, right? Because like, no one loves bell bottoms. That's not like a style from the 60s. Yeah. So we use love, that word, to dis- and we use it, but we use it also to describe the most important things in our life, which aren't things, which are the relationships with people. So our culture is increasingly confused about it. So I'm trying to think. I've got to define love. What should I do? So you know what I did? I said, oh, okay, so there's the three kinds of love. We're going to be focusing on the agape. That's the one that Jesus, when you, see, when you read about Jesus saying love, 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 almost all the time he's talking about agape, which is the highest form of love. Sometimes he's talking about do not be people that love the love. Um, attention or whatever, that may not be agape, but when he talks about love your neighbor, it's agape. Jesus is about agape, the full love, right? So I'm thinking, I need, I need some, uh, wh- how am I going to get some guidance? Pastor Josh had some guidance, of course, but then you know what I did? I said, Alexa, what does agape mean? And she, she, she actually got it pretty right, but she started off with saying agape as a noun, Oh, no, as an adjective, to have your mouth wide open, as in awe or shock. And, yeah, I don't think, I don't think she kind of gets the nuance of that. But then she went on, and she actually got it pretty right. She said, um, as a noun, Christian theology, interesting that it focused on Christian theology, agape. Uh, Christ, or God's love for humanity, complete, the highest. A selfless love of another I love the way she put this. Selfless love for another without sexual implications, especially spiritual in nature. And I would agree with that, except for the the spiritual isn't just like in in the atmosphere, isn't just like warm and fuzzy. Spiritual encompasses all other areas. And as a meal, 
as a sign of love, which is interesting. I hadn't thought of that, but I remembered it when I heard her say that this is when the early Christians meet together on Sundays to celebrate the resurrection. They eat together. They call that their agape feast. Very misunderstood by the pagan culture, but they used it as a way to communicate, to connect, to, to establish community. You really, if you want to get to know somebody, eat with them. There are literally, there are some, I've read where there's some psychological studies that say when you eat with somebody, you're actually, at a very low level, you're trusting them. Even if they're your enemy, you're trusting them. It's like we're, we're, it's built in our DNA. And so um, if you want to get to know somebody, be vulnerable and have them vulnerable in a good way. Uh, eat with them. And this is what early Christians did, and this is one of the meanings of agape. But the, the meaning is so confused of, of love in our culture, we, it, it comes and goes. I, I don't, oh, I love that person so much. Oh, don't love them anymore. Must, must be time for, you know, breakup, divorce, whatever. And there's just such a confusion. I see all kinds of uh, guys posting on Facebook about how, you know, they've lost the love of their life. But it's because love is more than that. Love is an enduring commitment. An enduring commitment to someone's mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual growth. Now, I've got some truths to share with you about love. Let me tell you, they're inconvenient. Because love is going to rip your heart out at times. There's just no other way around it. Matter of fact, the great, um, well, I don't know that he's great. I'm not really a fan of his music, but I love this line. Um, The philosopher, pop philosopher, Bob Marley said, everyone's going to hurt you. You just got to decide who's worth suffering for. And that's true. You love somebody, something's going to happen. I mean, been loving my wife for 47 years, been married for over 45, and at some point, one of us is going to go first. That's not going to feel good. People will move away. They sometimes will reject you. That is rather rare. It still hurts. It really hurts. They're going to die. They're going to get sick. Love is going to rip your heart out. Would you want to live any other way? Not me. Okay, so one of the biggest misconceptions about love, particularly in our culture, but not exclusively in our culture, is that love is a feeling, and love is not a feeling. Love is a decision. This is perhaps the biggest misconception about love, that love is a feeling. Love is a decision. Now, it should usually feel good. I get that. But if you're focused on your own feeling, you're missing the main point, that love isn't about you and your feeling. Love is about the other person and their growth. That's why love's the hardest thing you'll ever decide to do. Oh, and what's one of the things... Um, with with uh, high school and college students, so get them together, usually guys, and say, so, anybody ever fallen in love? See, words matter to me. Meanings of words matter to me. Anyone ever fallen in love? Depends on their age. You'll get, yeah, no. You've never fell in love. No one ever fell in love. Never, ever. Let me tell you why. Because love isn't something you fall into. Lust is something you fall into. Love isn't something you fall into. Love is something you reach. And words matter. And mentality matters. Love is something you reach. It's never a statement about who the other person is. Love is a statement about who you are and what your character are, is. Where do we get this? Coming back to that because there's a history of love. Love is not passive. Maybe we think of love as passive because we think of it as warm, fuzzy, feeling, good feeling. Again, usually should feel good, won't always feel good. But love isn't passive. Love is active. Love is intentional. Speaking words of intentional love and growth. Doing things that are intentionally growing and loving others. 
Love is intentional. And it knows no bounds of forgiveness or service. Love is always personal. We'll see that in a, in a story we're going to talk about with, uh, with Jesus where he makes it real. Again, it doesn't rip your heart out at times. You're probably not doing it right. Talk to somebody after they've had a breakup or someone has died. It's like Erwin McManus says, grief is proof that love is more powerful than death. Because if you, if you lose somebody, you don't, well, forget it. No, you, you love them more intensely. You, you can't hug them anymore, but you feel the pain of that love ever, ever more. And sometimes love's going to rip your heart out. Love is fearless. Pastor Josh pointed this out with hope, that hope is the enemy of fear. Hope is definitely the enemy also of love. And the scripture makes this clear. When love is perfect and complete, no room for fear. Love is generative. We, and it, we think of it, it, tend to think in terms of a zero-sum game. By that I mean, for me to win, you got to lose. For me to get money, you got to lose money, right? It's a, but love isn't like that. Love is generative. The more you love, the more you're able to love. And that's, it's sort of like brain power, right? The more you love, the more you're able to love. Here's the kicker. The more you love others, the more they're able to love. Love is generative. The more it's employed, the more it, is, it grows exponentially. That's how God has taught me about love, to see how his love grows. Missing something here. So the love history. Love's easy to take for granted. Maybe that's a big downside. And I don't mean take it for granted in a relationship. That happens, shouldn't happen, it does. I mean it's easy to take it for granted in our society. See, we all know love's right. We all know love is, the, is what we should live towards, what we should live for, even if we're falling short of that. But in the first century, love was not the standard of society. Brutality was. Greed. Hmm. Maybe we're getting back there. But we know love is the standard even when we fall short of it. John the Apostle writes about love. He says it's a new commandment and it's an old commandment. It's, it's an old commandment because God created us with love. Anytime you've ever created something, whether it's a thing or a relationship or an environment, that takes love to create. God created the universe out of love. He created us out of, out of love. By the way, and there, I think there's, this is like another sermon or sermon series is God doesn't God didn't create me to glorify him now when I get in relationship with God that's the only response that I should have is to glorify him but God created me to love me God did not create me because he needed John singing his praises John needs to sing his praises because he is my creator but God didn't need me didn't create me to to glorify him I mean have you seen Yosemite yeah God doesn't God doesn't need John John needs God. So God didn't create me to glorify him. God created me because he loved me. And then my love for him, my glorifying him is my only good response. But that's, so that's the history of love, that we were created with love, how quickly humanity falls away from that. When you read the Genesis story, uh, by Genesis chapter 3, men and women are all messed up with each other. And then by Genesis chapter 4, we have brother-on-brother violence. So it didn't take us long to fall away from that love. But Jesus brings it back. 
to a world that doesn't know love, where love is not the standard like it is now. I was looking at the, the B, probably a mistake, looking at the media, probably a mistake. You're not going to see love there. You're going to see, well, you'll see some sex. You'll see some sexual violence or some sexual harassment. You'll see political manipulations for the right or the left or whatever. But don't go to the world to expect and see love. Go to the Word, and that's where we're going now. 1 Corinthians 13. Again, it is the, it is the quintessential chapter of love, but it's, and you'll hear it at weddings, but it's not just about that romantic love. It's something much deeper. This is the area of love. After, uh, after I've read it, I'm, gonna, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go into a word study. Uh, I'm not that like skilled in Greek or Aramaic or whatever, but, um, but I'm going to tell you some of my experience. Now, the other thing you should know about the Scripture, it's, it's true of anything in history. You never just step into a moment, and that's reality. Whenever you step into a relationship, you step into the history of every other person that's hurt that person or loved that person in the past. Every romantic relationship, work relationship. You go in, you go in as a new boss to a place, it's like you're stepping into the role of all the other bosses that have abused them or, or been good, right? So whenever you step into a moment, you're stepping into a history that you may not know about. When you read the Scripture, remember that. You're, the Scripture, you're, you're stepping into a moment. We're going to step into the moment with chapter 13 here, but the Scripture in particular was not written with chapters and verses. That was added later. So when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in about 55 AD, he wrote it as just a letter. He's got his introduction and, and some themes that he's going to follow and a closing, but he didn't write chapter 13 discreetly just by itself. He wrote it in a context. So the other interesting thing about chapter 13, which I discovered, again, that's sort of artificial, but, it, but it, it, they've tried to, tried to organize it based on themes and the theme of love in 1 Corinthians 13. The second shortest by only five words of any, any chapter in, in letters that Paul wrote. So essentially, let's call it essentially the, the shortest or nearly the shortest chapter or theme that Paul wrote. And you read, if you read him, it's like his sentences go on for, how do you even break it up? It's like a 150-word sentence. But love is the shortest, but yet it's the most profound. Isn't that fascinating? But, but look at the context and back up whenever you're reading the scripture and, and roll forward a bit so you, you get the context, the before and after. And if you go back into chapter 12, you'll find out what's Paul talking about. He's talking about the human body as a metaphor for what the body of Christ, the church, is supposed to be. You've got fingers and toes and eyes and ears and mouth. Everybody's got a different function. Every function is important. Even the, the I'm not sure about the appendix. I think they've actually found something. But the, but the tonsil is definitely important. Every part's important. Every part works to, needs to work together. But the spiritual gifts focus individual functionality and, and productivity. So where does that leave us? With a million different body parts. So, as, as a church, what, where, where does that? Well, that's where, that's the context of love, because love becomes the unifier. He points this out later when he writes Colossians about twelve years later, in Colossians three fourteen. Love is the uniting bond of perfection. Love is the uniting bond of perfection. That's the context of First Corinthians thirteen. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. 
If I give away all I have, if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. So that part, the first part talks about the goal of love, the, the importance of love. Now for some detail about what love is and what it isn't. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Yeah, love's going to test your endurance. Then, say, love exalted, love detailed, now love's future. What's love's future? Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. There's a whole other like men's retreat topic right there. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And if anything captures the meaning of love, it's to be fully known and still cared for. To fully know and to be fully known. Now I've learned, now again, I'm not going to do a, but whenever you see love in that chapter, it's always agape, always the highest form of love in the, in the Greek language. So let me tell you about how I've learned about love. Because I think I've learned more about love in the last two years than I knew before that. And I was already, I would have considered two years ago, I would have considered myself, I know quite a bit about love. But I learned a lot. And like I say, love is, is that topic, is that kind of topic where you're always learning more. There's always more to learn, always more to grow. And it grows me, strengthens me. One of the things, I'll come back to that. So let me tell you about my, my friend, the bank robber. Okay, he's not really a bank robber. Uh, and I'm talking about more than one friend and more than one instance, but about some of the wounded people I deal with. Because God will send you wounded people. You're wounded. God will send you wounded people as well. These people need to be loved. They need to be cared for. It took a long time for him to share his issue with me, two years. And when it came up, God had already, and it's interesting, God had already asked me, if, he, if he's a bank robber, are you going to love him? I'm thinking, of course I'm going to love him. And then when I actually found out he was a bank robber, I thought, oh my goodness. Okay, he, again, he's not a bank robber, uh, but it's, it's serious. It speaks to serious. Plug this into the people that you're dealing with. What you're dealing with yourself, with, with however God's dealing with you, with the people you're dealing with. It has to, whatever love, this enduring commitment has to be able to span whatever issue that person has. Whatever issue that person has. Now, sometimes there's some direct talk involved. I mean, I had to tell him. Mary says, now, don't go easy on these guys. I'm thinking, oh, you haven't really been on the receiving end of my, uh, like, directness. Like, when I tell you this was a moral failure, this was a failure on every level, a moral failure, a personal failure, a legal failure, right? Yeah, this is pretty, pretty intense. Because love does get intense at times. Love does get intense at times. 
So he kept, yeah, he kept it a secret for a while, finally had the trust in me to, to bring it forward. And it was interesting because once he did, and then I went back to, and I don't know, I happened to be reading 1 Corinthians 13. And I went back to it. It's made so much more sense to me than it ever had before. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You see, I'm pretty articulate. I've, when my voice isn't cracking from, from the cold, it's even better. I'm pretty articulate verbally and, and in writing. I actually like writing better because you can like wordsmith your stuff. I'm pretty articulate. I can say what I mean and not, mean, and not say what I don't mean. I can say what that person needs at that moment and not what they don't need. And yet, if I get it all right, but I don't have love, I'm just a noisy gong. Nothing more. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. See, I can, I can share God's word with him. I can, I can show him where God's moving and where God needs to be moving him. And I can share with knowledge about how how his behavior is dangerous. I can talk about the knowledge of, the, of, a, of a man's heart and why, why he fell into this. I can get all that right. I, and I have a lot of understanding. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty smart, pretty knowledgeable. But if I get all that and I have all that right but don't love him, it doesn't matter. I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And so I understood at a much deeper level what love meant for my friend and for me. And it grew me. And then I realized this takes a lot of work. This business about, I mean, you know, I've got, I've got a lot of people to love. I mean, I'm loving God who's always teaching and challenged me. I love my wife. They're 47 years plus now. I've got kids. I've got four granddaughters, ten grandsons. I've got friends, people, strangers. I mean, I'm loving a lot of people. And yet in the midst of this, when my, when my friend was dealing with his bank robbing business, I realized how much energy it takes to love. And like I said, love is generative, so that's cool because the more I love, the more I can love, the more I love others, the more they'll love. Again, and as, as I... Um, I learned this really as a, as a father because when my, when my daughter was born, I didn't take, you know, half my love and they split. Now, Mary, you get half and, and Jennifer gets half. And then when my son was born, I got to split it three ways. No, love is generative. I get that. But it takes a lot of energy. So we do have limits to energy. And when I was loving my friend and trying to figure out how to love him through this, how that my love could hold him up, how my love could move him forward, I realized how much energy it takes, how much involvement, how much commitment. And God does this with everybody. He's like, I can't even imagine how big God is. People, yeah, people that reject God because they can't imagine him. I find that mysterious. I find that that draws, that draws me in the more I think about God, the more expansive he is. Who are you loving? Who are you holding up with your love? Who are you moving forward with your love? My enduring commitment to my friend and his growth, they gave him power. Power over his past and his present and freedom, freedom for his future. 
Love, the enduring commitment to someone's mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical growth. Okay, so how does that apply to God? God doesn't, again, God doesn't need my love. God wants my love. I, I need to love God. God doesn't, we need to love each other. I need to love and be loved. We're the, again, the only species that need that. But God doesn't need my love. I need to love God, so how do I do that? God doesn't, God doesn't need to grow emotionally or spiritually or, or physically or mentally. God's already complete. So how do I love God? How do I bridge that gap? Guess what? Jesus answered that question for us. John chapter 11, I mean 21. Uh, if you're not familiar with the story, it's after the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has told the disciples, he tells Mary, he says, go tell the disciples and Peter to meet me in Galilee. That's so Jerusalem, if you're not familiar with the geography, Jerusalem's down here, Galilee's up here. You can't go straight because that takes you through the heathen area of Samaria. You've got to go around. It's a 50 or 60 mile walk. And it's, you're not, you're not getting Uber. You're not getting Lyft. You're, you're walking. Now you might, if you're rich, you might have a camel or a donkey. Um, if you've ever been on a donkey very far, you probably prefer to walk. It's, it, you know, just wears you out in a different way. And uh, Jesus tells him to go there. Now Jesus can just show up now, right? He doesn't have to walk along with him. He just shows up. He says, go, go to Galilee. I'll meet you there. He doesn't say when. He doesn't say how. He just says, I'll meet you there. And so they go, and they're waiting. And that's where we pick up the story. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they got caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, have you caught any fish? And it's, again, they don't know it's Jesus yet, but it's more like, it's more like, like sort of a, like a put down or a, 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 just say, hey boys, you caught any fish yet? He knows the answer, right? They answered him, no. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. It's interesting. There's another sermon, again, on how God can be and can guide you in your profession. He's guiding them in their profession here. But I'm sure even if they knew it was Jesus, they'd be thinking, great, Jesus will do that. But you know, the fish don't know the right side from the left side of the boat. But they just do what Jesus says. Again, they don't even know it's Jesus. He just has some authority. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. Now, that, get that part of the scripture. He was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciple came in the boat, dragging the, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. Peter's a little impulsive. This is one of the characteristics of Peter. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. The fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus had said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, 
Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples before he was raised from the dead. Now, the, the story's about to get even better, but, but there's an interesting story so far. Jesus directs them to go there. Jesus goes ahead of them. Another side note, another sermon series. You never, ever get into a situation that Jesus isn't there ahead of you. Job interview, conflict, problems at work, problems in relationship. You're never in a, you're never in a situation that Jesus isn't there ahead of you. Health problem, Jesus is already there. Plug into that power. Jesus has already provided for them. You guys know how long it takes to get charcoal going? It's not a fire. This is charcoal. It's like perfect for cooking. Jesus has got it ready. Jesus has got the fish. He's got the bread. He doesn't actually need their fish. 153, large fish. That's a lot of fish. He doesn't need their fish, but he asks them to bring it because this is, again, another metaphor, another sermon series. Jesus doesn't need your help, but he wants to engage you, and he wants to engage them. He provides for them, gives them breakfast because they need to eat. They've been working all night. Then he challenges them. He challenges Peter. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He's, yes, Lord. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. With love, you lose control. With love, you lose control. Because when you love somebody, when they hurt, you hurt. When they hurt, you hurt. When they make a mistake, when they make a stupid mistake, you hurt. Jesus' last words to Peter, follow me. So it's interesting. There, now, here's a little bit of the, uh, the... There's different words for love there. Jesus says, agape. Do you agape me? Peter says, I phileo. So agape, phileo, agape, phileo, phileo, phileo. So Jesus says, do you agape me? Do you fully love me with everything? Peter says, I love you like a brother. Jesus says, do you love me with everything? I love you like a brother. Jesus says, do you love me like a brother? Peter says, I love you like a brother. Now, what's happening there? The interesting thing is Peter knows what the right answer is. Peter knows he loves Jesus fully. How does he know that? He knows that because when Jesus first called him, Peter leaves everything, his fish, his family, his workers, everything, and follows Jesus. When, when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Some, uh, some of the guys are saying, oh, maybe the prophet, maybe John the Baptist, maybe uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, he's so impulsive. He says the stupidest, most un-Jewish thing to say. He says, you're the son of the living God. Because Peter's instincts to loving and serving Jesus are right. 
when Jesus does the craziest thing about walking on the water, and Peter says, Peter walks out there. Peter's got to be where his master is. He loves Jesus. By the way, Peter was a fisherman. He knows what happens when you get out of the boat. You sink. He doesn't get out of there because he thinks he can walk on water. He gets out of there because Jesus is doing it, and he loves Jesus. He wants to be with Jesus. Jesus, Peter loves Jesus. When, when Jesus says, ah, it's time, my time's at hand, I'm going to be arrested, Jesus says, uh, Peter says, I'm going to go with you to the death. Now, he doesn't do it. He, we know he denies Jesus, but he has that in his heart. His heart is right, even if it's not complete yet. Jesus says, do you love me with your whole heart? Peter says. Now, it's interesting. Peter has to bring it down, but Peter knows what the answer is. He's, he's wounded by the fact that he's denied Jesus three times. By the way, I don't know if it's because of his impulsiveness or what, but Peter seems to need to get things multiple times. He, he denies Jesus three times. He has to say, um, I love you three times. He, later on, a few years later, he, he has to get a vision from God three times about, about passing the Mosaic Law. So Jesus, Jesus knows Peter's future, that Peter's going to be preaching in a few days to, to win over 3,000 people and then 5,000 people. And a couple of years later, he's going to free people from the Mosaic Law so all people can know Jesus. Jesus knows Peter's future. But Peter's only thinking of his past. Peter's thinking of the wounds of his past. How often our own wounding keeps us from fully experiencing the love God has for us. How often our own wounding is holding us back from God's love. Do you love me with your whole heart? You know I love you like a brother. But see, not only Peter knew the right answer, Jesus knew the right answer. Jesus isn't accusing Peter. Peter probably fought, felt like it was accusing. Peter, Jesus isn't accusing Peter. He's trying to get Peter back to where he was to realize that your instincts were right, Peter. Even in this story, which I didn't really see this until I read this, it's like, what are Peter's instincts? Going back to fishing, that sets up the whole miracle. Peter's instincts are right. When Peter finds out it's the Lord, he doesn't think, oh, that's cool, let's row to shore. No, he gets, he gets in the water, which, you know, isn't very easy to, to swim with, fully clothed. He puts his coat on, gets, gets in the water, because he's got to be with Jesus. He loves Jesus that much. He, I can only assume he's a good worker. I mean, he, he owned fishing before. He's, he's got these guys that are working for him. The work doesn't matter. The fish don't matter. The greatest catch in his life doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is getting to Jesus. Jesus is trying to get him back up to that level, back up to realize, you're my guy, Peter. Get past your wounds. Get back to the passion. Who are you loving? Who is your love holding up? Who is your love moving forward? Jesus is moving Peter forward. It's interesting because how do we show we love God? It's interesting what Jesus doesn't say, isn't it? it isn't, he doesn't say, do you love me? Believe right. Believe perfectly. Be an Orthodox Christian. Believe in the Trinity. These are all important. Believe me, they are. Jesus doesn't say that. Do you love me? Build a big church. Okay, we haven't even done that here, right? But 
physically. Do you love me? Give lots. Do you love me? Be morally perfect. All those things are important. Behavior is, imper- is important. Giving is important. Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. Build up the people emotionally, mentally, spiritually, physically. The other thing that's interesting about this story, it's the only time Jesus mentions it. The only time he asks someone directly, do you love me? He'll say, you love me, do my commandments. He says that kind of thing. But he never asks anyone directly, do you love me? But, so this is the first time as far as we know, but it's not the last time because he's still asking us. He's still asking you. How will you respond? You know what the answer is. You know what the right answer is. The only right answer. Who will you love? Who will you hold up with your love? Who will you move forward with your love? Will you do the work of love? Will you have the courage for love? You know what the right answer is. So I wrote a letter. It sort of sums stuff up. By the way, it's in the back if you want a copy of it. Because love is not just hard to define, not just hard to live, not just confusing. Love is the most powerful force in the universe. When Jesus commands us to love God with our whole heart and our whole being, he gives us a strategy to heal our own heart, our own souls. When he commands us to love people, even our enemies, he gives us the strategy to heal the world. When he commands us to love each other, he gives us his strategy to make his name known. Through love, God makes himself known to you. Through your love, he makes himself known to others. We're creatures of measurement. We measure our performance, our height, our weight, our financial status, our everything. But the true measure of a person is how much he or she loves. How will you measure up? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you intensely for your love, for the intensity of your love, for the permanence of your love. I thank you that you created us to love and created us to be loved. I just pray, Jesus, that give us the courage, give us the strength to love, and give us the vision to love you and to love others like you have loved us.